No, no, no. No, I've got a. I've got the one. I've got no. Trust me, I've got the one. This this is the greatest cult comedy of all time. No, 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 no. You're not listening. Listen to me. With Nell and I. Yes, yes. With Nell and I is the greatest. Yes, the greatest cult classic comedy of all time. Mm. You don't believe me? Look, I've got the bonafides. I've got the bonafides. Me and Kelly, we've got it all down here for you. No, we got the whole thing. It is the greatest. Listen, can you find a more quotable movie? Can you find, can you find a movie with a better friendship on screen? No, no, sir. This is the greatest one. It's got Richard E. Grant. It's got the guy who, who plays one of the, doc, the eighth doctor at some point. Yes, yes, it's a little, it's a little 80s. But it's also, it's also a little 60s. Yeah, yeah, you get what I mean? Yeah. Mm. Mm. Trust me. No, the best, no, we'll get into it. We'll get into it. It's the best one. And, and, it's one of the best romantic comedies of all time. That's right. Yes. We'll show you. We'll show you. Mm. God, this is good water. It's with Neil and I. Welcome, everybody, to A Gentleman's Guide to Rom-Coms. I am your host, Ryan Graves, and I'm joined by my best friend in the whole wide world, Kelly Song. Kelly, how you doing? Whoa, 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 whoa. It's bromantic day. It's bromantic. Bro. Ooh, what's that feeling in bro. the air? Bro. It's, it's, that, it's the feeling of bromance tingling on oh, my fingers. Oh, I, I feel it. It's tingling everywhere. It's tingling in places. No, no, don't go there. <laughs> Uh, uh, Ryan. I feel all tingly. Ryan. Yeah. Ryan. Yeah. Um, yeah. Uh, you're a bro, right? You're a bro with a kid, too. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a bro. I, I have a, a We're all bros. Bro have, is, bro is like a, a all-inclusive term, by the way. Yes, it is. Um, we, we don't, like, if this is your first episode of A Gentleman's Guide to Rom-Com, we're not generally this bro-y, but we can go there. <laughs> and you can, too, is what we're saying. It's not just us. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I, as a dad, bro, to me, I need some dadly advice. Can you? Can we start this off with some dadly advice? Dadly advice. And your old dad. Because a man who doesn't spend time with his family can never be a real man. Look, you're not going to be picking a fight, Dad. Dad, Dad, Daddy-o. Oh, Jonah, shut up! Shut up? Shut up? Mom never said shut up to me. No drinking, no drugs, no kissing, no tattoos, no piercings, no ritual animal slaughters of any kind. Oh, God, I'm giving them ideas. You walk your kid in a stroller, not like a dog, right? Um, well, sidecar to that question, I really want to have, we're going to Disneyland later this year, and I really want to have Wait, when are you going to Disneyland? leash in June. Can I come? <laughs> Sorry. You not know this, I know more about Disneyland one. than everybody. Why aren't you inviting me? Doesn't seem like you've a very, already been enough times. Doesn't seem you like know a very enough about it. thing to do to me. I don't know. I know. I'm sorry, but I really, I have no shame in saying I really want to just have a leash for my son. He's two. You know, there's no shame in having a leash. It's not. It's not like I'm going to yank his chain or anything. I just need to make sure that I always have 
like a tether on him because he's two. He's gonna he's gonna try and wander. Yeah, I think I don't think my parents really brought me to Disneyland until I was like four. That's yeah. bold. That's and bold even then, it's it's scary. I'm still gonna. Uh, well, I don't really have a choice. <laughs> the, it's the it's the extended family that's bringing me. Sure. So, well, I'm I'm still gonna show up though. You they, can go. They, they don't just, have to. Pay you can't for go me. with us. No, I'm yeah. gonna sh- I'm gonna if show up. You just up, happen to be there. I'm gonna happen to be there. Run into you and say, "Oh, Ryan," and then you're gonna have to pretend oh like I never gosh. said this. I'm yeah, gonna save no, you from your relatives. Come on. I'm touching. I'm touching my nose. That's that's the secret symbol mm-hmm, of mm-hmm, oh mm-hmm, secret secrets. Mm-hmm, or okay, it's, so I'm walking mm, my kid. We had too much of that that good powder <laughs> too much cocaine. Last night. <laughs> uh, so I'm walking. I'm walking. I'm walking my kid through 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 the town. I've been doing this every morning because I get up with her around six because I work at seven, and I walk yep. her around <clears throat> to keep her quiet. <laughs> <laughs> and not playing around in the yep. house while Robin is trying to get a couple precious hours of sleep. And I noticed this a couple of weeks ago where I'm like walking the baby through town and an old woman will spot me from 40, maybe 50 feet away. And sometimes they wave, sometimes they don't. But I can always, I get this like force sensitive spidey sense kind of, oh, I've been sighted by an old lady. And yep. what happens is... They approach me and then they like ignore me and turn like standing next to me to look in at my stroller where my child is. And Mm -hmm. and Ryan, most of them are wearing masks, but there's a couple of them that have like pulled this move. Which is uninvited, by the way. I don't stand aside and say, yes, look at my child. They look at it as their right to come in and stare inside of my my protective car that I put my child in. And mm-hmm. they just like blast next to me and they're like, oh, your kid, how old? And there was one lady who was like reaching toward my kid as if she wanted to Gucci Gucci my child. And mm-hmm. I'm going to say this, even before COVID, don't touch a stranger's baby unless they explicitly hand you their baby. Yes. I witnessed this for one of my friend's babies where there we were looking, we were ha- all hanging out at the coast waiting for the big eclipse that, oh, yeah. that happened a few years ago. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and they had their baby with them. And this guy just straight up was like, can I hold your baby? And in my head, I'm like, you are a stranger. Leave, depart here immediately. <laughs> like, I'm like, get away from the child. You are stranger danger. No, you cannot hold the baby. But they were like, sure, you can hold the baby. I'm like, you don't know them. You don't know where they come from. They could have germs all over them. Why? Now, okay, so now that is that is an interesting thing because if, I mean, especially if like, you know, Omicron and COVID go back to the hellscapes that they came from a little bit. And I was talking to somebody and I didn't really know them, but they were like, Hey, your baby's super cute. Can I hold them for a second? I might be okay with that. But there was a lady who waved at me as if I knew her. And I just like stopped and like turned around. I'm like, I I don't know you and ran to me to look in the crib. And I have a theory. <laughs> I just imagine <laughs> like John Cleese and Monty Python and the Holy Grail just like <laughs> just, just barreling towards <laughs> your child. <laughs> and then she stabs me with a broadsword. Ha <laughs> ha!
<laughs> you're like, hey. <laughs> um, well, I, I, sometimes it's. I, I sympathize because at, at the grocery store, Sarah has this person who works there who sees Theo every time. And she's learned to avoid this person because what they would do is they would go up to the stroller, put their head, pull in. their mask down and then talk to Theo. And it's like, do you not understand what we've been doing this whole time? Not only that, <laughs> but he's not going to remember you, weirdo. <laughs> he is fine. He's not a lip reader. He's not deaf and practiced in learning how to read lips to understand what you're saying. He's looking at your eyes and he's only less than, this was like a year ago. It's like, he's not even going to begin to understand what you're saying. So yeah, I feel you. So I I have a conspiracy theory about my village, and I I think what it is is I'm a man, right? And I got a beard, yeah. and I I haven't had a haircut in a while because we have a very young child, and there's just not room for th- normal things in my life right now. Yeah, and I I think I look suspicious, and there's like a neighborhood watch out for people stealing babies and so what they're <laughs> no, doing no, no, is they're no. you turn- look like a dad you look you you don't look suspicious you look like a dad let me get to the end of my theory okay i think this because they always like they don't like they don't walk up to me nice and be like hey oh can i see the baby and then look in they do is they run around ignore me coming from the front side and then turn and face the baby and then look at me. So what I think they're doing is trying to see, does this man look like this baby? <laughs> do, these, do these two look related? Cause maybe he snatched a baby. No, That's- they really don't care about you. They, they have no interest in you whatsoever. That's what's going on. They just see stroller. They think, ah, baby. And they're going to see the baby and you're just happen to be in their way. That's what's going on. You are a distraction. Do I, from do the I main owe attraction. these, do, do I owe these women something like, cause I get it. Like you, you, your kids are grown up and you're like, all I want to do is be with my grandbabies. And maybe you can't be with your grandbabies a lot or don't have any grandbabies. I, I mean, I get it, but do I, owe if these? There's, there's I, Ryan, a... I need you to answer this. Do I owe these women anything? <laughs> You owe them. This is what I do. I do the hi. Here, what what do I look like when I do this? Hi. You look like um, one of the one of the Bluth brothers. Are are you hi? I I um I just I just greet them and I keep moving. That's the thing. Never stop. Oh, you can't see, linger. I'm if too you polite. Linger, they're like, going to accost you. No, keep I like going. Smiling at Don't people, be British so about I smile this. And, no, no, no. Okay, I just blast past. No, them. you smile. Smile. Wave. Make eye contact. Flip let them, them off. make eye contact with. <laughs> let them make eye contact with the baby because that's what they're there for, and then leave. I I just like we were talking Monty Python earlier. I want to watch the movie of this happening, <laughs> and they come up to my baby, and I just punch them, <laughs> and it's just me going through a town of grandmas and biddies and just like defending my baby from them. Yeah. No, no, it's it's weird. It's suddenly you're thrust into a new social circle when you are with your child because you can walk around a neighborhood without your child. These people will ignore you. You are nothing to them. But or as soon as you've them. got a stroller, yeah, as soon as you got a stroller, then you are the most important person on the block. Robin and I have made parent friends. Like uh, there's a couple people in oh. our neighborhood who like I know their names and have their phone numbers. 
Yeah, I have yeah. a lot of neighborhood friends that I only know them because I our walks just time out every yeah. time, and I mm-hmm. walk by their house, and their kids are out there, and we talk about the school system and how terrible it is, and you know, you just want to get your kid into the best private school available, and it, it's happened. It just all of a sudden, just we're overtaken by this lifestyle. <laughs> I I think this conversation that we're having is not a conversation that with nail and I would ever have. Yes. So this week is with nail and I, because it's Valentine's day and because we are bros, it's a bromantic comedy. And last year we did, I love you, man. And this year we're doing with nail and I, our favorite movie together. Want me to tell you a story? Yeah. See, was that weird? Because I flipped it. (laughs) No, it wasn't that weird. Tell me a story, Turk. Let me tell you a story about love, D'Artagnan. I ask you about love, probably quote me a sonnet. I'm not much more than an interpreter, and not very good at telling stories. That's the end. What do you mean, that's the end? That's not. It's the beginning of something interesting. Listen, that's the end of that saga. The end. With Noah and I, Ryan, I think I'd rather talk, rather than just start it off with that story... I'd like to know our story of how we were introduced to this movie that a lot of people haven't seen. Okay, my introduction to this movie is really weird and cryptic. I was talking um, to my theology teacher. Okay. <laughs> what you you had well, it, you I already didn't, I didn't you already know if we have... were going down like a Dan Brown esque scenario of crypticism. Yeah. But, okay. Great. Cool. It it involves a codex. It involves a codex. Uh, I was talking to my theology professor when I was in college. This is during college. And I was talking to my college. Wait, did professor. you go to college? I did. Okay. I want you all to know it. <laughs> so I was talking to him, and he's like, "Oh, hey, by the way, I watched that movie with Neil and I." And I'm like, "Oh, I don't know what that is." He's like, "Didn't you recommend that to me?" And I was like, "No." He's like, "I, oh no, it was someone else was telling me about that. Never mind." I'm like, "Wait, what's with Neil and I?" He's like, "Oh, it's this movie that not you recommended to me, and it was really good." So. Yeah. Which which professor? Anyways, we was should this? probably start class. <laughs> it was Adam Nieder. <laughs> hey, I love Adam Nieder. So this was back in the day of Netflix DVDs. And so ah. I just took his advice and I threw it on the queue. And just one day it was it was with Neil and I's turn. And I was like, oh, cool. And I had it not at college, but at my home in my hometown, my parents' home. And so it must have been like spring break or something. And I was pretty hungover that morning and i had nothing to do and i was like i guess i'll watch some movies oh man you just said i I had nothing to do and i realized for the next 18 years i'm not gonna i'm not gonna have that (laughs) it's so i miss it so much (laughs) um but yeah i was i was really hungover and it was a really rainy morning and i just i had no plans that day and i was like i'll just throw this on drink some coffee just chill out. And this movie was everything I ever wanted and needed in that moment. And mm-hmm. it hit mm-hmm. me so hard because this movie is a tonic to the hungover person in your in your heart. I think it's because there is there is something empathetic that as you are hungover, you can feel for the people in this movie. Like you can, yes. I think, I think there are so many times with, with nail is just in so much pain. You're like, Oh man. And, and same thing with I. Um, but the, I, I think when, if you watch this movie and you have no hangover, 
it's still a good movie, but it switches immediately to sympathy. Yeah, because I had to be stone cold sober when I watched it because I'm like, I got work in the morning. I'm not drinking Yeah, exactly. Right <laughs> so, uh, I mean, how many times have you seen this, do you think? 20, 30 times easy. Because I, I think it was Leonard that introduced me to this movie. And then you and I, I thought watched... I was the one. You, Leonard brought it up to me, but you were the one who made me watch it for the first time. When, did we watch it in college? Yeah. Did I get you drunk the night before? Yeah. Ugh. I'm I'm a genius. Good for me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you are. Yes, you are, my friend. I so I mean that's I, I don't have as as grandiose of a tale. Um, but I I got drunk with my friend and watched this movie, which I feel like is the most appropriate way to watch this in the morning, hungover with a good breakfast. Yeah, <clears throat> I this movie is was made in 1987. Uh, it is produced uh-huh. by George Harrison, directed by Bruce Robinson. And I have to say, one of the first things that is really striking about this movie is that it's set in 1969 and it feels like it's filmed in 1969 and not in a bad way. When you think about the math, it's kind of disturbing because it's like, oh, 1969 must have been aeons before 1987. It's like, no, if it was, if we made this jump if we made a movie in the same like math 2002 jump, we would be no, two, 2004 yeah so 2004 i mean there's not i we didn't have iphones then but otherwise 2004 <laughs> was pretty banging of a time i mean usher was bigger yeah yeah but like <laughs> that's just it's just weird i don't i can't conflate 1969 with the 80s they are they feel like two completely different eras to me they do. And I, I honestly think that right now, I think actually 2020 plus is going to feel a very different era than early aughts. It's, I think yeah. we're just a little bit too close to it still to understand. But there is nothing in this movie that even smells of the 80s, like not in the soundtrack. Yeah. <laughs> the, the only thing that does, I think, is there's this this thing about late 80s like dra- dramedies that are like I think perfect movies <laughs> like they're they're so mm-hmm. formally great and so that's the only thing that feels of the 80s is but but like the film stock the lighting there's just something about it that seems like one of the better movies made in 1969 like yeah it's 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 definitely a 60s movie or like an early 70s movie I'm like looking at I'm googling british British 80s movies and they all they all look like they're made from like the 70s like it's like Britain was behind because I think about 80s American films and like think about it real genius Ferris Bueller like these are very starkly different from this movie you know I bet part of that has to do with the cameras that they were using because and 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 probably something to do with the film stock because like if you think about watching a BBC show, <coughs> just how different that look was until about 2006, 2007, where it was like, this is distinctly British. It has like this British lack of production value. Yeah. And I, I don't know what kind of cameras they use, but I know they weren't using Panasonic's. Yeah. It just feels, it's just very charming. It just doesn't feel... Mm-hmm. It, it, it feels, it adds to the escapism that you're yes, not watching yes. an 80s American comedy. You're watching this 
quaint British film, and it just it just adds to the like deliverance from your current situation. Yeah, and this this movie wasn't popular when it came out. It was really the VHS that gave it new life and like cult status. Um, yeah. and, and George Harrison being involved in it. Um, but, yeah. but let's talk about the story and then I think we'll get a little bit more into like the behind the scenes stuff, maybe a little bit later. Yeah. So we meet I, which we can now, f- um, refer to as Marwood because you can't have the subtitles be labeled I, you have to give him a name, but he's not given a name in the movie. No, but he is actually given a name in the script. He's called Marwood once in the script as well. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. Um, So we meet Marwood, who is just cradling this hangover. And Mm, it's this beautiful way to describe it. (laughs) It's this beautiful push in on him. And he's just holding the cigarette. And he's just, oh, the agony. It's like a poetic agony. And um, there is this cover playing of Whiter Shade of Pale by King Curtis, who's like this jazz musician from Harlem. And like the the version of the song is like this live version that he played at a concert at the Fillmore in San Francisco with like Aretha Franklin. And it's just like, this is such a confluence of of a beautiful moment where it's just like, like the music is great, but this person's having a hard time, but there's such a beautiful mess going on that we're seeing. And we're just like looking around this apartment in this really, really long shot. And it's, it reminds me of places that I lived in college. Yeah. The squalor of it is so relatable. It's just, I think this is a perfect movie for people in college, or at least it will just make you think of your time in college because there's something why did we enjoy living in such squalor like like i don't know about you i don't know if you have the bandwidth to do this yet but when i have my all day with theo i enjoy getting the house neat and tidy and clean and Mm -hmm. perfect for our family to enjoy why did we why do we enjoy the mess i think there's something about humans i think very uh, physiologically or um maybe just ingrained in us that our nest feels like our mind state yeah wait and no i don't want to have a messy mind state i want to have a clean mind state everybody does but that doesn't mean that we do i would say that Uh. with with nail and marwood um, it's weird calling him Marwood. Can I say that? It's it, like, know. I've only ever called him. I, um, yeah, but the, the state of being that they are in is the, as he puts it, the realm of the unwell. And I don't necessarily think that means that if you have a messy eccentric household that you're unwell, but, but I think there's something, there's something that I enjoy about cleaning for sure. I love, I love having a clean space because that means that when I like get to my desk, it feels like there's millions of possibilities, especially if I'm writing. Mm -hmm. But then again, at the end of the week, like before I've like cleaned my desk, it's like, I have four pens, 12 note cards, my screenwriting book, two pairs of glasses for some reason, three books and like a couple of mugs. None of that needs to be there, but my brain didn't have time for the cleaning. And I don't think 
I think there's something special about these two vagrants where their spirits and their brains don't have time for the cleaning. <laughs> I don't think they have the <clears throat> sobriety for the cleaning. Yeah, is, I mean, is the, is the thing. They're they're making time, right? They're making time for living life to to the what? What do these two characters live the life to? Because they're 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 two, let's set them up. They're two struggling actors living in London. And we'd have no idea whether they're good actors or not, right? Right. They're kind of living on we welfare. We know they have, they have passion. They totally have passion. Sure. We. I mean, that doesn't mean you're good, though. But I, I choose but at to least, believe... I'm, at least that. At I choose least to believe they have passion. That they're both great. They're both Byron-esque in their, their love of theater and acting. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. They're uh, total romantics. Yes. And and we meet them coming off, I think, I think with Nail, who we get his narration throughout this movie, or not with Nail, but M- Marwood, we get his narration and he is saying that they like, they haven't eaten in a long time. They are just coming off of like being drunk and on speed for like 30 hours. And yeah, and they're like the, the movie opens up with like Marwood, like needing to go he like makes tea and then he needs to go out and get food and so he goes to this local place to like get a cup of tea and a little bit of food and he just sees this world that is scary and dirty and just not what he wants to live in like yeah like he goes to this diner it's disturbing him yeah right and it's 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 a different kind of squalor but he can't be around it for some reason yeah yeah this whole movie has like different pockets of squalor um yeah like oh there's something in the way that like the it's not the runny eggs but it's like the eggs with that amount of grease on it that are served up at this diner oh <laughs> so he, he goes home and is visceral yeah he goes home he finds he finds with who's finished the last of the wine and with is so upset because he needs to be drunk still and for probably a dozen reasons. One, he's addicted to alcohol. Two, he's he's coming off of it and he's getting a hangover. And I've never done this, but I know a lot of people have done this that to avoid a hangover, just keep drinking. Well, okay. So there is something to this. I tried this a couple of times. Um, the it's you know, the hair of the dog, or mm-hmm. if if you're if you're in Game of Thrones, I think they call it fire of the dragon that burned you. Nice, George R. R. Um but it's not that you want to keep being drunk. That's not that's not the trick. No. The trick is but you're, to just you're have easing a li- off of it. Yeah, to have a little bit of alcohol so that the shock doesn't feel so bad. It it didn't not work for me. I I don't I don't know if it made me feel better, but it didn't make me feel worse when I tried it. It's really hard to convey to the audience the humor of the first 20 minutes of them bumbling around like it's Marwood <laughs> trying to like calm with Nell down who's desperate to t- to medicine himself yeah okay so I, I think the best way to describe this is to get into their personalities and kind of describe what kind of friends they are yeah like where where I think if it, for any Frasier fans out there Marwood is the Niles to with Nails bulldog <laughs> Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, but so, Marwood, Marwood's got a bit of a mess to himself too, though. I mean, he's. I think he's only a mess because he attaches himself to Withnil. Totally. He he indulges mis- half as much as Withnil. I I think he's a. I think 
Marwood is afraid that his life is going to be uninteresting without Withnail. He kind of has fear of missing Withnail, FOMU. <laughs> and uh, so he, he would be more responsible, but he doesn't really have anything better to do with his life if he's not doing his art. And since he's not doing his art, he might as well be with Withnail, who's the most interesting. Yeah, and Withnail is just a roving, self-destructive alcoholic, but a man who has a verve and passion for life itself. And yes. it's this this collision course of he's simultaneously destroying himself in the pursuit of living the most like amped life he possibly can. Like what it feels like is if like like I don't want to go to certain music festivals. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, for instance, I like I've never been to Burning Man. I've heard it's a once in a lifetime experience. I feel mm-hmm. like I feel like Withnil is a once in a lifetime experience every day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And his attitude Where, towards alcohol is it's worth any hangover to get the drunk that he can get on most days. Yeah, and it doesn't even seem like he's alcoholic. I mean, obviously it's, it's a physical disease, but it also feels like this is the most romantic he can live right now in a weird chaotic way. And to, to the point where he, they, they, their heat isn't on There's there. They don't have any food and they don't have any alcohol. And so with Nell, drinks lighter fluid <laughs> and then vomits all over Marwood's shoes. Yeah. And you're right. The, the, the comedy of these moments are like them despairing about life and like, <laughs> like reading news articles at each other or thinking that there's like something horrible in their sink and trying to kill it <laughs> because it's, yeah, it, it's like, they is feel it like sh- they feel like, not literal clowns because there are literal clowns in Shakespeare's plays, but they feel like the fools but, that we see in a lot like of Rosencrantz and Gildestern. Yeah, and it's it's those asides that we're seeing take place where it's breaking up the action, and it's like let's look at these two bumbling idiots for a little while to get some comedy in there. But that's the whole movie, and and it's it's like having a play within a movie because they're both actors, and so their eccentricities make sense. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And so they figure out that they need to get out of this squalor and get a break from from it all, but still enjoy the benefits of drinking constantly. Yeah. And so it's it's pretty much summed up when they're they're out at the park and Withnil spits and he says, "That's the only solid thing to pass my lips in the last 36 hours besides a peeled potato." Oh, raw and, potato. Oh, it's, raw potato. Ugh. And so they, yeah, yeah. Then they go to the pub, right? Where like a guy there's, so this is where like the movie kind of starts off on its, it's like, I think very undercurrent gay storyline where Marwood is in the restroom at this pub where they're like, how did they come across money? Um, they have a little, they have a little, okay. So (laughs) at that point they have a little, yeah. When the pub opens up, they're like, okay, we can get alcohol there. And so they go to this pub and they start drinking cider with, with ice in it, which I have drunk since then. And I'm like, this is a good drink. (laughs) And then just straight gin. And 
then Marwood goes to the restroom and um, he sees some graffiti. And I, I think you should just play this clip here. <laughs> I don't consciously offend big men like this. This one has a definite imbalance of hormone in him. Getting him more masculine than him, you'd have to live up a tree. I fuck asses. I fuck asses. Maybe he fucks asses. Maybe he's written this in some moment of drunken sincerity. I'm in considerable danger in here. I must get out of here at once. Yep. So and then he, this, he encounters that. And there's this guy who is like calling him a ponce. Perfume ponce. Which is. I think a male prostitute or somebody who, or maybe it's like a pejorative for like, if you're gay in Britain in the sixties, I'm not sure. Either way, this guy doesn't like him and he's big and he's, he's very drunk and he's, he's out for blood. Yeah. And so he comes over and just wants to kick with Nell and Marwood out of the pub <laughs> and it, it has one of the best lines which I think Ryan reads perfectly we we always say it to each other and like like with nails like no 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 please don't beat me up and what is what is his excuse for not getting he like says, I have a baby my wife is having a baby <laughs> <laughs> I have a Please, baby. I have a baby. <laughs> Which I tell myself all the time now where it's like I don't need to be going through this. I have a baby. And <laughs> yeah, that's true. Um so we get this arc that these two best friends are having a really hard time. They're cowards, they're layabouts, they're drunks, they're maybe not drug addicts but doing enough drugs. And yeah. So they need to get out. And so Withnil calls Uncle Monty, or as we yep. know him, Mr. Dursley. <laughs> right. So Mr. Dursley in the 80s. Um, and he is an eccentric, very eccentric former actor person. And he's very, um, I, I say this as a fellow larger man, but he's he's wonderfully fat. I'll just say that. He's wonderfully I, fat. I think the shakes if we're sticking with Shakespeare, the term is festively plump. Yeah, he's very Falstaffian in his his stature. Yeah, he's he's got some some swagger. Like I love when he hits the couch after he lands on it. It's just like he's like like he can get up, but I worry. I'm like, no, nah, just stay there. Like I feel like he's yeah. got a little violet Beauregard to him after she's eaten the um, Oh like yeah. he's he's just got a good roundness. <clears throat> But he has this poetry to his line delivery that every English major will understand that he just has this pronunciation and enunciation in the je ne sais quoi of how he says things. And he's at, he's simultaneously creeping you out, but also just so artful in his way of life that you can't not enjoy him. The carrot has mystery. Flowers are essentially tarts. Prostitutes for the bees. Mm. There is, you will agree, certain je ne sais quoi, un so very special about a firm young carrot. Mm. Excuse me. Yeah, because I think he is, he is at the same time both earnest and pompous, where mm-hmm. he is, you know, he's he's showing off everything he knows about like Shakespeare and the arts, and he wants you to know that he's well educated, but. It's not so annoying that you don't want to hang out with him. 
Yeah, and he'll just make these outrageous statements like he hates geraniums because <laughs> they're yeah. prostitutes for the bees. And, and he thinks the carrot is infinitely more fascinating, uh, which yeah. is which is uh, also points to the fact, or foreshadows the fact that he is also gay. And yeah. I have a sneaking suspicion that everybody in this movie is gay, but we'll get to that at the end of the movie. <laughs> right. So um, they 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 get through a weird night with Uncle Monty, um, and they convince him to give a, the give them the key to his cabin out in Penrith, which is the Penrith. country, the English con- Penrith, the English countryside. And so they go out there. Um, and you got the Jimi Hendrix going. It's it's wonderful. And they, they actually got most of the soundtrack just because George Harrison was producing. George Harrison rocks. And I think this is one of the only movies we hear a Beatles song in because yeah. it's uh, my his guitar fucking Beatles Fleet. song. Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> he's the one who owns the right to it because he wrote the fucking song. <laughs> uh-huh. He's like, yeah, I think I can pull this. Did you also see that um, Richard Starkey has a credit in this movie too he gets like a special thanks to richard starkey aka ringo star no i didn't see that i don't know what he did to help but i'm really curious now what george harrison would need to call in a favor from ringo for my guess maybe danny maybe some of his clothes (laughs) are from ringo's (laughs) closet yeah yeah Oh, we forget to we forgot to introduce Danny. Danny is this like um, drug dealer who puts in a once in a lifetime. No, nay, I say twice in a lifetime performance because he basically plays the same character in Wayne's World too. Hell yeah, yeah. I, I I don't I don't I don't associate with a lot of drug dealers, but I did I did run into a lot of purveyor of drugs during my college time, and I, I'm not going to say they were just like Danny, but Danny is a type that we all know. We've all sure. run into the Danny type, like. Da- Danny, I think Danny is like the the pretty extreme version of the type that we know, but we all know a Danny. He can he can get you what you want. You just might not want it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah, they also kind of need to like stay away from Danny because he will he will fuck you up with the drugs that he's he's peddling. Yeah, and he has just this very, very distinct cravy accent where he's like uh-huh. I want to know what you want to know, man. And it's yeah. it's like it's like even his accent sounds creepy and dangerous. Don't get uptight with me, man. Cause if you do, I'll have to give you a dose of medicine. And if I spike you, you'll know you've been spoken to. You wouldn't spike me, you're too mean. Besides, there's nothing invented I couldn't take. If I medicined you, you'd think a brain tumor was a birthday present. But he, there's this British accent. Can I get an accent expert to call in to the show? There's this British variant. I don't like using the word variant anymore. But um, where you kind of, you kind of roll your R. You you kind of what your R's kind of come out of was like they kind of like. Can, give cool me, give your me a boots, word, man. Oh, like, cool your boots, man. Yeah, cool your boots. I'll, I'll make you. I'll make you wish for a brain tumor. Like he, you don't quite. He doesn't uh, quite nail the sure, R. He rounds sure. it. It's this weird. I, I don't know. It's like this. I don't know where in England people sound like this, but I've heard this in other British accents. Yeah, you're right because it's not quite crabby. It's it's it it, it feels like. Like there's a certain consonant, a couple consonants that 
are deadened, like they were smashed with a hammer and they don't come out quite but not right. Because of, not because of drugs, but because of his Britishness. No, right? yeah, yeah. It's you because know, of it, his dialect. It feels location-based, location for yeah. sure. Yeah, and that just for us Americans just adds to the charm that we're getting, that it's this weird escapism that we're we're meeting these characters that we would never meet in real life, but we know exist right. in real life. Because because Richard E. Grant is like, he kind of has a Cambridge accent by way of too long in London. And mm-hmm. and Marwood, I don't know, like Marwood feels more like, like Liverpool-y at times. Um, yeah. And I know that was actually a reason why Bruce Robinson didn't want him at first. He wanted Kenneth Branagh to play Marwood. Oh, that would have been weird. <laughs> but Branagh wanted to play with Nil. And he didn't want right. him to play with Nail. And so he, he ended up firing Paul McGann and then hiring him back after Brana said no. Oh, crazy. Isn't that weird? Yeah. Yeah. Anyways, it, the anyway. accents are just delicious. Um, so they eventually get out to the countryside and it's it's a and rainy night. And they're drinking the whole time they're driving out there. Yeah. Yeah. And with Nail is a wreck. He's just pissed, just pissed drunk. Yeah, and it's raining, t- and it really made me feel for, like, traveling anywhere before, A, before cell phones, but B, like, if, you're, if your car doesn't have, like, good windshield wipers, which one of my cars actually, I have need to replace them soon, but it's that, <sighs> that feeling of everything is manual that you really get yeah. in this movie, where there's, like, and no more- technology to save you. Marwood at one point goes, where are we? Because he's so frustrated and so British about it. And every time I get lost or if I get a little bit lost, I go, where are we? <laughs> I just relate to that <laughs> the, moment so much. This movie's endlessly quotable. Um, so quotable. And so, like, at this point, Withnail is no help. And Marwood finally gets them to this cabin at Crow Crag that Uncle Monty has left them. And... They get there and, you know, they're wet and soaked and the car has crashed. And there's like, you know, it's that thing where if you've been traveling all day and you're having a bad time of it, you all you want to do is just lay down. You want things to be easy once you get where you're going. And Mm -hmm. this is the opposite of easy. They can't start a fire. There's no food. There's nothing there. They didn't think this through. They just left London, flipped off a couple of schoolgirls on their way out and said, we're going to Crow Crag. But there's nothing there. It's, it's crazy that have you ever been near a house that's like this that there's no electricity, there's no running water, there's no there's no 20th century amenities. There's running water involved. at this place. There's there's running well, water. Well, there's at this like place. a well. It's like a weird it's not quite running water. No, no, like, they they have to pump the sink. Yeah, I know, but that that's that's technically running water. I know, but there's no faucets. You can't just turn on the water. You got to manually get it going. Sure. Um, I, I mean, I, I, here's the thing. I, I haven't. I don't actually think I've run into. I've never stayed at a, a place like this. I've been in places like this, but I've never stayed mm-hmm. overnight. But I just have backpacked a lot, which is basically a further equivalent of what you're talking about. Yeah, but once they get inside, they literally have to light up oil lamps to light their way, which is just. It, can't it, they're delivered into this 19th century cabin yeah so it's like they're like you know what we need a holiday you know what we're getting farm work <laughs> yeah exactly it turns into a lot more work and with Nell is very disturbed by this being a tragic mistake yeah and and with Nell is is so little help and i i don't know 
I feel a lot like Marwood sometimes when I like go places with people who don't know what they're doing, where I'm like, yeah. can you, y- there are things that we need to do to survive. I need you to start doing them. And they're like, oh, I just don't feel like it. And I'm like, oh, this is going to land on me. I'm going to be the one doing this. <laughs> Yeah. (laughs) And you can feel Um, that from Marwood. We love this movie so much. We'll probably explain every scene in detail, but we don't have time for that. So I'm going to hit fast forward on our description of the plot just so we can keep things moving. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. I am enjoying this scene. Get on with it. So... The, the morning arrives, and that brings us to my one of my favorite scenes in the movie, and the mm. soundtrack, the song is called Marwood Walks, and it's this beautiful, poetic, um, pastoral song where Marwood is getting the vacation that he hoped for, where he takes a walk amongst nature. Oddly, this is one of my favorite scenes in cinema. It doesn't yeah. make sense as to why. It's just a quiet walk in the countryside, and I think abutted against all these scenes of desperation it's Mm -hmm. a relief and you're right the music is just unparalleled perfect for the scene yeah and it it goes to show One of the themes of this movie is a classical English literary device of the rejuvenation of nature, which is like Mm -hmm. a central tenet of English romanticism. And I I think very essentially, this is a scene where Marwood goes alone. And Mm -hmm. I think it it tells us that Marwood, Marwood can heal. Marwood has potential. He, he can connect with a place that is outside of himself and, keep changing and growing whereas with nail doesn't go on this walk and that kind of no (laughs) with nail with nail is very much a byron-esque byron where yeah i don't think about a lot of byron poems being about the rejuvenation of nature whereas that's probably more a wordsworth thing or a keats thing even though keats totally died in his prime (laughs) but so so there's this really Oh, go ahead. No, I, I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out which of the poets actually got something out of nature and which of them got syphilis and keeled over. Well, okay, so you're right. It's like Wordsworth, uh, Thoreau, um, um, uh, Whitman. Um, but actually, there's this beautiful Byron poem that is written late in life where he is lamenting not being in the country. And, oh, interesting. Uh, it's 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 this really beautiful poem where he's like a lot of my friends are dead, you know, love loves have gone, like I still love the person I'm with, but like I all I want is to be skipping over the hillsides again because I feel like I have wasted so much of my time and it's a longing for this moment. And Yeah, and basically that's what's going on here is that it's wasted on Withnell. He doesn't understand how perfect this is and it's not wasted on Marwood who understands its power over him. Yeah, 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 yes, 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 yes. Oh my gosh. And so he he eventually like gets home, can't he's trying to get food, can't get food and they kind of fix up the house a little bit, um just enough to survive and they they um they go down to or or is it the farmer yeah the farmer they get the farmer the farmer's like yeah i'll bring you a chicken and <laughs> in another really hilarious scene they 
don't really know how to dress a chicken or they don't have really the implements to cook it. And so they end up standing it up inside of the stove. See, what's great about they basically have misadventures on this this little cottage. And it's so relatable because I every turn I'm just like, I can imagine being on this trip with Kelly and we would have the same kind of like I, I would probably default into the with position of not being as helpful. But I think we would have. I think I would have been a little bit more helpful, but I think we would have been equally as lost when faced with a live chicken and having to kill <laughs> sure, it and get it ready for dinner. Yeah. And it, it's just utterly relatable. Yeah. Oh my gosh. It's so good. Uh, yeah. I think, I think you're right. I think I would probably take hold of the execution of things. I think you'd be much more helpful than with nail, but I think we'd both appreciate nature. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, they, they run into, they go to the bar, the one bar, which ah, I wish I could have this experience of walking through twilight to get to this country bar. And again, it's that rejuvenation of nature as part of it. But there's something about, and we, we did this a little bit in Spokane. I th- well, not really, but I feel like the walk to the bar as a, vo- as, cause they had a car, but they walked to the to the bar for because a the car was stuck in mud but b that way they didn't have to worry about crashing on their way home yeah because they absolutely would have driven drunk no matter what oh yeah um but but the walk to the bar under twilight mm, i love it i love it too and i love that they just stay there until closing we see with nails like abilities when he cons the bartender out of free drinks by doing a little bit of stolen valor when when he's like oh yeah i was in the raf blah 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 and And so he is a good actor he is a good actor i mean this whole time with nails also trying to get a job back in uh london he's like calling his manager and his manager's like i don't got anything for you um and he's being passed over for roles (laughs) he's like getting understudy roles and he's not he's not willing to put in the work as not the star in order to become the star that he wants to be. Yeah, but Marwood is Marwood yeah. is willing to do the the grunt work. And we see a lot of back and forth of like Withnail not not really taking it seriously. He's very vain and wants to be considered worthy of a role, but he's not going to try hard enough, but Marwood does and we see Marwood but, be the beneficiary of that patience. Yeah, because Withnail thinks he deserves it. Like and yeah. maybe, and maybe, maybe talent wise, he does, but he, he, I think he feels the world is against him because there's that like emblematic scene where they're walking through the countryside. Uh, I think it's when they're maybe walking home from the bar at one point, yeah. but he like looks out into the, to the great beyond and says, one day I'm going to be a star. And mm-hmm. he like yells it at the world almost as if he's angry yeah. with the world for not making him a star. Yeah, and he he doesn't get the role. There's a role that's that they're both trying to get, and Marwood gets it, and Withnell doesn't get it. And Withnell very politely says, "Congratulations!" And you can just see the pain that his he didn't get it, and he's so oh, envious. I don't. I don't, I don't know if they were going out for the same role, it's not but the I same think role. they. But they definitely knew about this stuff that the, these roles were available because there were several yeah. roles that they were auditioning for. So I actually wanted to ask you about this as, um, as somebody who is an artist, as a writer um, there, I think there is in the ego of every writer, even if we are the kindest of 
and most generous and compassionate of people, I think there's an ego in every single one of us where when we've been trying really, really hard and not succeeding in that way of like the accomplishment that we're going after beyond the actual art itself, when somebody right next to you does, it it hurts. And it's yeah. graceful. It's graceful to say good job, but it still hurts. And I think that moment that you were talking about is so powerfully true where with well, that's is why this movie is friend. that's why it's so relatable for the both of us to watch it because they're both actors we're both writer director filmmaker people and it's nice to have this podcast that we're always on equal ground because <laughs> <if> <laughs> yeah, the totally. podcast does well we equally have done well but you have a bunch of screenplays out there and have you you should you should keep your ears out every time you come to me and say hey the script you know, became semi-finalist or it got to the quarter finalist. I always say the same thing. I say, well done, because that's what Withnell says to Marwood when he says he got the role. You're very, very encouraging. And I love that. Mm -hmm. And actually, I always think, I always think, what does Withnell, what what does Withnell say? Say, well done, say, well done. Like you gotta, you gotta be very good sportsman about it. And it's funny because like in our in our 20s, it was kind of reversed because you were directing like short films and then you directed that feature and we would go to um, like a bunch of festivals and stuff and everybody would have questions for the director. And Mm -hmm. I like I, I remember like not not being upset about it, but just being like, you know what, this is this is hard for me not to have as much recognition, but I'm so happy for my friend, you know? Yeah. It's, and I always imagine like whose coattails is going to go first. Cause I, I have the confidence (laughs) that I have the confidence that both of us are going to succeed as filmmakers, but I'm just wondering, it's going to be one of us first and the other is just going to ride along. Oh, please, (laughs) please go with it. I would love it if you would just, um, become successful and then bring me along that, that would make it a lot easier on me. You you were in this lifestyle position where you had more time to be writing and you were like churning these things out and I'm like God and and it's so strange it's cyclical because like that was me like maybe two years ago I was like finishing things and you were trying to get your one screenplay perfect and I was just yeah. like ah I'm just and I just like you know <laughs> clackety clack get get it out there and and now you're churning things out left and right and I haven't been able to do that because I've been so busy with the kid and work and all this other yeah, stuff and you're and learning just, new skills too yeah but the, this movie is just always encouraging of like in spite of Withnail's like rampant lunacy he still is a good sport about stuff and it's he's he can be a role model to us sometimes he. Okay, there's that scene in um, that we watched in White Christmas, or not White Christmas, but Holiday Inn, where um, mm-hmm. where Fred Astaire dances drunk. That reminds yeah. me of Withnail. Yeah, because Absolutely. he's he is obviously drunk, and he's obviously not at the top of his game, and he's rude, but at the same time, he's so graceful. Oddly, mm-hmm. and. We, Richard E. Grant is a teetotaler, right? He doesn't drink. Well, he he's, never drinks. Yeah, he's he's allergic actually to alcohol. His body doesn't process it. Uh, yeah, so he, which is ironic. This man <laughs> playing p- the the person playing this drunk has never really been drunk, or maybe he has, but he he doesn't have a lot of he life doesn't experience anymore with it. I, and it's the yeah. same with his character in uh, uh, 
uh, not Call Me By Your Name. What's what's the? Gosh, why can't I think of this? It's the the one that won Best Writing. Um, him and Melissa McCarthy. Um, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. What is that movie called? He plays a spiritual successor to this role. I feel like. Yeah, it would. It's like where with now would be 30, 30 years later. Can you ever forgive me? Can you ever forgive me? That's right. the movie. Yeah. Um, so they encounter this poacher. Um, is it, what is the name? Jake. <laughs> Jake, and he he threatens to shove an eel like up their butts. I think. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that that chicken's none of your business. Excuse me. We were wondering if we could purchase a pheasant off of you. No. I've got nothing to sell. Oh, come on, old boy. What's in your hump? Now, look, you. Them pheasants are for his pot. These eels are for my pot. Now, what makes you think I should give you something for your pot? What pot? A cooking pot. Ah, he knows. <laughs> <laughs> and they're very, they're very terrified of this, this poacher who lives in, in this uh, farm town. And so that night, Withnell keeps trying to get into bed with Marwood because... They're stronger together, and they'll fend themselves off. And he's convinced that Jake is going to break in. And they hear someone breaking in, and they think it's Jake, but it turns out to be Uncle Monty. Hey! And I love Uncle Monty's appearance, where he's just like, oh, oh, I'm so sorry. Oh, like my boys. Oh, my, my boys. boys. <laughs> and Uncle yeah. Monty comes to the rescue. He's brought them food. He's brought them wine. He's, you know, he's, he's there with food to spare. You know, oh, yeah. he's 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 their savior and it turns the entire thing around. Yeah. And at first Marwood is like, oh, it's Uncle Monty, what, whatever. But pretty immediately, Uncle Monty starts hitting on Marwood hardcore. Like as if as if he was exp- it, like so much so that it's as if he expected him to be extremely receptive to it. Yeah, it's like it's like as if Withnail told him it's like, hey, you know, this guy's really into you. You should you should <laughs> do uh-huh. something about it. Uh-huh. And so he 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 goes and but he's also treating them like the like the young boys that they are, where he's like yeah. telling them stories about past lovers that he's had and he's like saying, you know, you you must enjoy life. You know, he's yeah. he's really trying to dad them in a way too. He's well, he's holding mentor, court with them. He's holding court the way that I think if you and I became professors of English literature, this is how we would not not in the Uncle Monty creepy ways, but in a lot of sure. other ways, we wouldn't we would enjoy being able to just espouse wisdom. Yeah, but not only that, but like hang out with young people who were doing something that you also loved doing. Like I, yeah. I'm really going to love doing that when I'm either teaching or just, you know an old guy working on sets. I have this weird thing that I really do want to be a film professor, but I feel like I can only become a film professor by succeeding in a, in a man, in a measurable way in Hollywood. I don't need to be super successful. I just need to make one movie that does a little bit of business. Then I can be like, I know what needs to happen and I will now be able to teach you. But I feel like if I just start teaching today, it's just a failed screenwriter teaching future failed screenwriters. <laughs> I know that feeling. I've had that feeling. So the, what happens at first is one of your and my favorite scenes. They, they go into town to get the boys Wellingtons. Monty gives them money and they proceed to not buy boots, but get really drunk. And they go to they a bar a- and they order 
two quadruple whiskeys, which is super illegal in the States. You can't have a quadruple whiskey. No, but I wish you could. Like, yeah. And also, I wish it was 1969 prices, because I think for the whole thing, they drop like four pounds. A, a buck. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they drink um, two quadruple whiskeys. No, I think they drink four quadruple whiskeys between the two of them. But then they also have like a cider to like wash it down. Oh my God. So then, then they go they, to this tea and cake shop. Yeah. Cause they need food and they show up, you know, as a couple of, I think, okay, there's some morality in this scene because that I, I don't know like what the ethics are that I agree with because these two guys that are pretty clearly drunk, but not disturbing the peace yet come into the pub or into this tea shop. And then almost immediately the proprietress like walks over and is like, we're closed not because they are closed, but because she doesn't want to serve these two guys. And I think that's discrimination against. Well, absolutely. But you and I have both been servers. We've both been servers in this position where people, we will have customers come in and they're not doing anything that's measurable that you can't say, to like the OLCC and be like, yes, they they failed the sobriety test, but there's a vibe where it's just like, sure, I don't like what came in here. Yeah, vibe is the right word. It's like you're going to be a lot to handle, but I think she she she's the one who instigates the problem here. And then since since they get poked by this lady trying to like kick them out, they up the ante and they're like, we're multimillionaires from Los Angeles. We're going to buy this place. We're filmmakers. We're going to make a film here and You're we're going to throw a jukebox in here. And another one of my favorite lines, Ryan, play it now. We want the finest wines available to humanity. We want them here and we want them now. So good. It's so good. Um, and so the, Uncle Monty comes up in a Rolls Royce. And so Uncle Monty is clearly old money. He has some yeah. kind of line on old money. Yeah, because like he's not successful. Like they, no. they talk about how he like had some sort of career on the stage ish, but he never got to play Hamlet. So, you know, you know, there, the guy's not successful. That's the thing about Uncle Monty. He knows how to live an artful life, but he's clearly un- unemployable. But he knows how to spend the money correctly because yes. he's got the roles and he's got the Rolls Royce. He's I not should destitute, say. right? He no, has, he has multiple properties still. He hasn't like if if Withnail had this money, he would be poor already again. Yeah, um, he makes an art form out of spending this money, and it's just like you and I both. It's like, look, if you gave us the money, we would be so classy about it. We, we <laughs> please, would, we wouldn't please. waste it. We would we, we would wear bu- nice tweed suits. We'd have a nice Rolls Royce. We would buy the Wellingtons. We would yes. buy the Wellingtons. We'd be and, very responsible. And I, what what he is, Ryan? The word you're searching for is gentleman. He, well, outwardly, not outwardly. towards not. <laughs> ultimately, he's not a gentleman towards Marwood. Well, yes. So that brings us to that night where everybody's getting drunk and. Um, Gosh, like Monty is hitting on Marwood more and more and more and more. And there's like this whole thing about who's sleeping where and with who. And Withnail is super drunk. And so he doesn't like get to sleep in the right place. And basically what ends up happening is Monty comes in and tries to sleep with Marwood. And then when Marwood obviously says no, like at first Monty is like, I get that you're not wanting to admit that you're gay, but it's fine. It's, you know, 
you and it's it's just us here and then he says no again and monty delivers this line where he's like if it must be taken by force like so be it yeah if i must have you i'll something through well i'll just play the line if you want to humiliate me humiliate me i adore you tell him if you must i no longer care i mean to have you even if it must be burglary so i think i i do not think that the writer nor um the director are displaying um their own feelings about gay people and like gay panic i think they're describing like a character who is desperate for love and yeah and was looking forward to this so much and then gets it taken away. And so I think they're making a very human character. I don't think they're and saying a, a very acute situation where they're not yeah. saying gay people gay. are rapey. <laughs> yeah. No. Yeah. No, no, no. But like I, I can definitely, I can definitely see people's reads of that, but I don't think that's what's happening here. I think Monty is a tragic character who wasn't allowed to be openly gay and mm-hmm. thought that, there was a chance for him to have a passionate love affair and then got extremely carried away <laughs> and, yeah. you know, almost, almost did something bad. And then yeah. the, the way the scene resolves itself is Marwood has to lie and say that he's in love with Withnail, uh, which immediately softens Monty Monty's to him. heart. And yeah. it's such and- a complicated scene, isn't it? Yeah, and it's I, the the conflict of the scene is is not this character having gay panic and af- afraid of homosexuality itself. It's that he's afraid of this guy who can overpower him and hurt him and right. and, and and violate him. And he yeah. is very justly afraid of what Monty is capable of doing. And it's nothing to do with the bigger picture. Right. Yeah. And I mean, that's, that's our opinion. If you, if you read the scene differently, I, I know this is a definitely a touchy subject. So, you know, you're, you're right as well. (laughs) Um, but, but yeah, I, I think very much there's this Marwood rightfully gets so angry at Withnail because basically Withnail admits to Marwood that he told, he told Monty that, you know, Marwood was way into him and that's the whole reason that this thing went down and that's um, how like with Nell's like that's the only way only way we could have gotten the cabin and it's like I don't know I think I think you had the cabin in the first place but yeah with Nell got Ka- carried away chaos agent and also so this is this is where like I think that this movie is about two friends but I also do think that with Nell I, I don't know if Marwood is gay but I think with Nell is in love at least with his friend Um, yeah. And I think he, I think in this weird lunatic kind of way, he was testing the bounds of Marwood by like foisting his uncle upon him. Yeah. And I also, I also have an alternative read that I think he, he might just be asexual and not have sexual interest in anybody. Um, because of the final monologue this movie has him say. Ooh, um, okay. Because he, I can't remember what the line preceding it is, but he's doing the Shakespeare monologue and he says, um, men, men no longer interest, men no longer interest me, no women neither, no women neither. What a piece of work is a man. How noble in reason, 
how infinite in faculties, how like an angel in apprehension, how like a god, the beauty of the world, pagan of animals. And yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? Man delights not me. No, no women neither. No women neither. And I think yeah. it's him saying, like, relationships w- with anybody, romance, I'm not interested in. And uh, Marwood's I, the only person he can really connect with. Yeah, and I, I the reason why I read him as maybe n- not necessarily gay, but at least in love with his friend is, is that line. Because once Marwood, spoiler alert, leaves, he says, now men don't interest me nor women neither mm, mm, yeah um and i think but either, either way there was no one is, else is, there yeah. for him it, it, yeah. it's marwood or no one i mean it, it could be monty but i feel like you know that's that's family right it's it's not right. like somebody that you found to make a life with yeah but in usual movies like this where it's about the the um the misguided deeds of two young men. It's usually about them chasing tail in addition sure. to getting super wasted, but, but neither is, of them are at all interested in doing that. No, not at all. There's, there's no mention of sexuality at all, except from Monty. Yeah. And it, it's, there's no, there's no heterosexuality to this film basically. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Any, any kind of sexual talk is, is purely homosexual. There's a little bit of like 60s, um, like I think this was written into at one point in time, Marwood's character says he he calls um, Monty at, when they leave a raving homosexual. But it's it's not necessarily said in like a way where it's like where he's like, ah, gross or anything. It's just that like he it's it but it is like 1960s like also this really crazy thing about him right um, right which add, i feel like adds to the the resume of why monty's crazy or at least that's yeah. how he was he was characterizing monty and we don't see him exactly. that way but yeah we don't see him that way and um and i feel like that was written in to maybe hurt withnell if you do read withnell as gay mm, yeah or at least in love and there's, with, with marwood there's no female characters and well, there's like, there's the school the girls. Old, <laughs> there's the school girls that are extras and there's the old farmer's mother who has a couple of lines, but she's this old maid basically. Yeah. But and then there's the really grody people in the, oh, um, and then there's the tea shop the people. Thing. So like, and but, yeah, the tea shop people and then the, the diner people, but all of the women in this are stuffy or way too young or just not but really even aren't characters, but not yeah. even characters. They have no bearing on yeah. the plot at all. And, no, not but at all. we do have, we have with Marwood, Monty, um, the, uh, Danny, Danny's friend, presuming Ed, <laughs> which is his like presuming business Ed. partner, presuming um, Ed. the farmer, Jake, the bartender at the the farm bar the and that's really it any any kind of character uh-huh. who has semblance on the plot are all men and this brings me back to my overall complaint of the Bechtel test it's like what are you doing like there's movies that have all women and there's movies that have all men and that doesn't make it 
bad. So this movie, the, if you try to have an affirmative action, where it's like, oh, we got to get some female characters in this. Like, no, 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 no. It has so uh, much to say about masculinity. I, I don't think the Bechdel test is saying every single movie must have women in it talking to each other. I think it's a way to point out how few movies had women talking to each other, not about men. And I guess so, I but what's the mandate? What's what's what no, are we supposed I, to I think do? What, I think what you don't like is other people using that as an example to never have movies with just men in them. And I think really that doesn't happen as often as you think, because you've brought it up a lot on this podcast, and I, I think it's a good thing to bring up and talk about. But I I rarely run into somebody who's like, ah, that movie didn't have enough female characters for me because it and since it didn't pass the Bechdel test, I don't like it. But I think it's more a, a global thing to look at the fact that we do need more women characters who aren't just talking about men. Uh, no, I know. And yeah. I, I, I just think there's this a problem. It's more from a corporate perspective that there's this mandate of like having this bingo card of diversity of like, <laughs> like I saw mm. the trailer for the cheaper by the dozen TV show. And it's like, name a minority and they're represented. And it's like, that's not bad in itself, but it does feel not motivated by actual storytelling, but it just felt like you need to have a person with a wheel in a wheelchair in the story. You have to, you must. And it's like, okay, how, how about this character? Whereas I think we need to do something more alternative to that and empower these people to actually make movies that they want to make. It, it just feels so forced when it's a cheaper by the dozen remake. It's so uninspired. It's like, can we actually have more diversity behind the camera so that they're actually telling their stories so that we have more stories from around the globe and from women filmmakers, more person of color filmmakers instead of this corporate mandate diversity, which feels so fake and so forced. That's my problem. And I feel like Bechdel test gives the wrong answer to the corporate people. And it's like, no, give the money to these other people who actually have real stories to tell. Yeah. And like, I think especially if you're telling a very specific story like this, the, you know, that that test doesn't necessarily apply here because it's mainly talking about are there actual female characters in this story talking to each other about that? Or do you just have a couple of girls who are love interests? You know? Yeah. Let's see. Where were we? Oh, that's right. Monty goes home and... So there's this this letter, right, where Monty basically apologizes and he's like, hey, I'm going to leave quietly. And he the way Marwood reads it, he's so heartbroken for Monty. Mm-hmm. Yeah, like, and, he's, and he's a true gentleman about it. And rightly mad at Withnil. And so they kind of accept that. Uh, well, oh, no, Marwood finds out that he got the role like we had talked about before. So they have to go home. Yes. And so they go home, and Marwood is is exhausted from the week b- that they've had, and um, with Nell drunk as a skunk, decides to drive them home, and he's speeding like a madman. And so they get pulled over, and the cops start leaning on with Nell, and then the cop delivers my favorite line of the movie. Look here, my cousin's a QC. Get in the back of the van. And uh, yeah, it's brilliant. And with Nell does not get away with being drunk. He had this whole apparatus. It didn't work out for him. <clears throat> but regardless, they get home, and I guess he's fined or something. Maybe he has his license taken away. We don't know. And that's where we meet, presuming Ed. And I think this is where we find out that, like, at first you think Marwood just got a backup role, but then you 
find out he gets the lead because yeah. we meet Danny and presuming Ed who both like snuck into their house and have just been living there kind of. Yeah. Basically and, squatting and <clears throat> causing trouble with their landlord and they find out that they're getting evicted. Yeah. So basically like Marwood is given an escape and Withnell is stuck. Yeah. But doesn't realize how stuck he is. Cause he's, he's super high cause he's smoked uh, a Camberwell carrot. Oh yeah, that's right. <laughs> he, there's a really ridiculous joint that um, Danny makes them. And yeah, and that, I know I, a I, lot of people <laughs> who get stoned like this, or I did not not they don't get stoned like this anymore. But this sure. is what I was surrounded by in college. People were either with nail, which were off their rocker high, just laughing like the Mad Hatter in Alice in Wonderland. Or they're doing what Marwood does, and he starts getting the fear and gets uh, super paranoid. I only mm-hmm. saw those two poles in college. I never saw the casual weed smoker. It was always oh. super stoned people in my life. I I feel like I only knew the casual stoned people. Like mm-hmm. like the, the it, it was funny because kings when I when they smoke, yeah. Like when when I watched this movie, like I'd seen you know people freak out or you know be slightly lunatic but it was so far and few in between whereas like the rest of the people i knew in college that like just smoked weed all the time were just like yeah we're pretty chill yeah they were more like (laughs) presuming ed without the weird wow 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 thing that he does (laughs) yeah i I had a lot of presuming eds in my life too um so then basically the movie ends because marwood gets a haircut he looks really good with the short hair He's yeah. like, I'm gonna go be Doctor Who. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, he, it, it. Paul McGann. Yeah, he ends is up being the eighth the doctor doc- during the movie. Yeah, he's yeah. the eighth he's doctor. He's the he's the only one in the in the only movie about the doctor. Yep. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> and yeah, mm-hmm. Marwood has to go to Manchester, which is where this play is, and it, it it's an interesting like Manchester. I don't know a lot about England, but I've got to th- I got to think it's like going to Seattle or going to. Maybe Chicago, but it's not. It's not the place uh, to be an actor. But it's it's little. from what I gathered when I was there. Manchester is a place of old industry. It feels. It felt more like, like if, like kind of like Cincinnati. It felt like, like if Detroit got an upgrade. Yeah, but it's it's still a big city. But it's not. It's not the capital of art. But it's still no. again. It's something reliable and something sensible for Marwood to do to take a role. In Manchester, it's yeah. no London, but it's it's something. Yeah, yeah. And when they say goodbye, like Withnail just keeps like he's like, "Do you want to have a last drink? Can I walk you any further?" And Marwood just keeps saying, "No, no." Like mm-hmm. he's like, you can tell that he loves his friend, but he's like, "I have to go. I'm gonna be late. This is gonna be <laughs> I'm practical going to, for me. I'm going to die if <clears throat> I keep doing this with you." And did you know? So I mean. The movie ends with Withnail basically reciting some really beautiful Shakespeare, some wolves at the zoo, and then just walking off to this odd carnival music. Yeah. Like, and it's it's almost as if the movie's like, look at this sad clown. Mm-hmm. And, and did you know in the book that, because this was originally written by Bruce Robinson in 1969 um, as a novel, <clears throat> mm. and uh, at the end... It ends with um, him drinking that that bottle of wine and loading a gun and shooting himself. God, I'm glad they didn't do that. Me too, because I think there's this 
bittersweet ending with, you know, Marwood going away and getting what he wants, and then the bitter being, you know, Withnil's life falling apart. But I'm like, I'm glad it's it's almost sadder that he does continue living this life, not ending it here <laughs> yeah. in, in a weird way, but but it's less it's more poetic this way. And I like the act of the film existing as a tribute to this friendship. As fictional as it is, it's kind of saying these guys had to break apart because they were in a death spiral together and Marwood had to move on. And he says, I'll always remember you. And this movie is the memento of their friendship. Right. Because Withnil is based on Vivian Mackerel. Mackerel. It's Bruce Robinson's best friend that he lived with. And mm-hmm. um, Withnil is actually a combination of Bruce Robinson and this character, but this character died of um, throat cancer. And mm. um, Bruce Robinson is, con- is convinced it is because he drank um, lighter fluid. And mm. like there's, there's a lot of, you can tell that this story came from somebody's lived life. And yeah. with nail isn't Vivian exactly, but he is Vivian to an extreme extent. And yeah. I, I, I think that's so interesting as a backstory. Actually, it was, was it you or Robin that got me a book on, on this movie? I think it was me. That sounds like me. Yeah. Yeah. And it's a good book. And it was, it was just written about like the two of them and, and what an eccentric character, like, like it, it's kind of Seinfeld esque. Isn't, um, like Larry David based yeah, yeah. Seinfeld uh, or yeah. he based Cosmo George on one is of his Larry friends. David. Yeah, Jer- exactly. Yeah, well, Larry David is George like to the letter. Yeah. But yeah, that's with Nell and I. So we're going to take a break and then come back for Trope Talk. And welcome back to Trope Talk. It's like slope talk because there's a lot of hills in this one. Mm, like England, the England's rolling, rolling hills. hills. Yes, mm, I exactly. like it. <clears throat> What's the trope this week, buddy? Uh, the trope is the two-hander plot. That's what they call stories where it's like, <clears throat> like they called my our movie that we co-wrote together. Emily is a two-hander because it's about a married couple, and it's only about a married couple, so it's a two-hander. Um, and so it's it's when a story is led by two protagonists and they they equally carry the load of telling the story. It's not about two separate people, it's about two people who have the dual it's a dual purpose. They they now they're heaving and hoeing together. I I, I agree with you on this one, <clears throat> but it's it's interesting that you bring up that um when this movie is not only narrated by Marwood, but we don't really get any alone time with Withnil. Right. But we, we don't except, have a movie. Except when with... he talks, I think he talks to Monty at one point in time, but no, it's, it's still from Withnil or Marwood's perspective in that. At that point. Yeah. But, and yet the movie still is dependent and contingent on the direct relationship between these two and kind of is only concerned with the push and pull of who they are together. And once they break apart, the movie can't exist anymore. It's like we have nothing to do anymore. Right. And yeah, I I, I, I like you said a two hander. I, I hadn't heard that term before. Mm-hmm. Um, like other other movies like this are Harry Met Sally. Yes. When, when they did meet, 
Yes. When when Harry met Sally, and because that we see them individually for the first act, and we kind of see them run into each other. But when the second act of when Harry met Sally gets going, it's because they gets they get crossed into this friendship that is very important to them as people, but also to the story that it wants to tell in describing human nature of men and women in relationships. But it really, the movie really gets going when their friendship bonds. Yeah, I guess I I would even say that like when you're telling a perspective or a story from two different characters' perspectives, even when they're not together, it's almost even more of a two-hander because it's obvious that the filmmakers are saying each of these people are equally important because we're showing you each of them by themselves. Yeah, and it's it's kind of uh, showing the contrast of the two characters, and it's always mindful of how they're affecting each other even when they're not together. How how does this differ from a traditional romantic comedy, like, let's say, like Notting Hill? Yeah, so Notting Hill, you've got William Thacker, and he's our main character, and Julia Roberts is the object of his affection, and he's the one he chases— and she kind of flits in and out of the story. And we're, more, we're not really concerned with the interior life of Anna Scott. We kind Unless of she's are. in the room. Yeah. Only through relating to William are we really caring about Anna. But it's, it's yeah. not, she's not ever present in the story. And there's a lot of – all the heaving of the story is on him. She doesn't really move so, the plot forward. So would that mean that, like, um, after Boromir dies, does um, is Lord of the Rings kind of like an octopus, like where it's like got eight tentacles? <laughs> it's an eight-hander. Uh, yeah, it's it's eight-hander. an eight-hander. Okay, okay. But like Frodo uh, and well, Sam, for much of Lord of the Rings, is a two-hander. Like you, they both so th- are carrying the load. It feels like carry the load. <laughs> I I feel like this. This happens most often because, I mean, it's always the ones that it's the ones that we're bringing up in movies that have to do with friendship. Like, because even when Harry met Sally, can these two people be friends? Right. Yeah. And, you know, an interesting one that almost counts is as good as it gets, because that's this weird triangle of narrative Mm. where. Oh, yeah. It's this cycle of Helen Hunt affects Greg Kinnear, who affects Jack Nicholson and vice versa. It's just this this equal tr- triangle the whole time. And I think this this happens. I, I think this form is probably perfected most in something that is more like either a sitcom or a TV show like Gilmore Girls, where mm-hmm. like Lorelai and Rory's lives are intertwined with each other inextricably, but they each carry the narrative of each episode. Yeah, yeah, like, and we're it, we're. Equally rooting for them both. Because when we're watching Notting Hill, we're hoping that William gets the girl. Whereas when Harry met Sally, it dramatically makes it about Harry chasing after Sally. But it's still about we hope these two can make it work. Not one or over the other. Right. Right. Yeah. I think hoping for both of their successes must be one of the main ingredients in this because at the end of the story, I want Marwood to succeed, but I really do want Withnail to figure himself out. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking sleepless in Seattle, you've got Tom Hanks, you've got Meg Ryan. They aren't carrying the plots together on like a tandem bicycle, but they both, (laughs) 
kind of are equally sharing the load of the movie itself as individuals. They're like, they're like unicycles towers. (laughs) They're like the twin towers. And the movie is like a man walking on on a a wire wire between them. (laughs) No, I, I like it. It's more like two unicycles that crash into each other and it becomes a bicycle after that. Because they meet oh, at the very I, end. You got some peanut butter in my Reese's. Or, <laughs> you no, got some it, Reese's in, already. You got some chocolate in my peanut <laughs> chocolate butter. Chocolate in my peanut butter. <laughs> so yeah, that's the trope. It's 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 a great trope because it's a great movie. Speaking of a fantastic tropes, one that always seems to pop up on our show is our trope of the Patreon. The trope of the Patreon. So this week on the Patreon, something very juicy happened. Um, I'm looking at our poll for our February movie. It's where our our patrons can will pick the movie that we we watch at the end of the month, and they they demanded that we do adventure rom coms. And something very very unique happened, where we not only have a tie, we have a three way tie. We what are the movies that are tied? Romancing the Stone, Mr. and Mrs. Smith, and True Lies are all on equal footing. And we go into... Oh, wait, what's the movie that didn't get picked? Fool's Gold has a whopping nothing. <laughs> I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah. So when in the event of ties, we do we do anyone, any of them that wins. So if there's a three-way tie, and everyone's voted so far, so we'll have to get some new patrons if we want to break the logjam of this tie. Um, but March may just be the month of adventure rom-coms and I'm totally okay with that. I'm okay with that too. And can I say patrons, you all have exquisite taste because you all picked the best movies and left out the worst one. I appreciate you. Yeah. Um, um, also at the things- Patreon, uh, I have, oh, let me see. Yes. I have your essay here. Um, oh, thank God. The, the, the train man said that he was going to come by, but he wasn't quite sure if you were still sick and I'm that did, did, did he come in? Did, uh, he say, did he say, hey? There is some spit on it. There is some spit on it. That's what he used uh, spit to seal the envelope. It was oh, okay. spit. Not He didn't lick it tight. It's it's dripping. Did, so. Wait, did the, tra- did the train man, was he the one who got you sick? Probably. Probably. Oh, he spat that in son my of mouth. A bitch. <laughs> um, but it's your essay, and this week you wrote about the, the what best- What were you doing with the train man? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Talk about my essay. Your essay is about the, the the best the best movies for our Valentine's Day for you to enjoy with your Valentine. Right. I'll, you know, I don't know everybody's situation, but maybe you're not going out this Valentine's Day. Maybe you are. Maybe you're making a date of it and get out there and do it if you are. But if you're not and you're staying home, probably like me and my wife are, you might want to have a nice romantic movie to like really ease into the evening with. I don't now know. I don't know. Maybe you don't have kids. Maybe you don't have to deal with this. <laughs> maybe you can go out or maybe you can do something hot. Who knows? <laughs> but when you've you, got a baby, it's much Ryan, harder. Are you doing something hot? Are you doing something Some hot? like it hot. Um, I, I just want <laughs> to give a, I want to give a shout out to the volunteer babysitter so that we can have a date to my sister-in-law, Lauren, who out of the blue just said, Hey, I'm coming over. I'm watching your child. You guys should go out. So that was very nice and very, very generous. So thank you. And actually I think we might even get to go out because Kathy Robin's sister is coming over. So sisters to the rescue. I think that we should actually segue rather than our usual segment here. Let's segue into letters because you brought up Lauren and Lauren. Oh and Rachel. my God sent us some letters this week. 
Hey, Fro. Huh? Mail come. Got mail for you. Oh, Pete, you've got mail. You sent me a letter. You've got mail. Uh, okay, so last week we did Legally Blonde. Yes, we did. Callie took issue with the bend and snap scene. And nah, that's I took fine. issue with the snap. The bend and, the bend is great. Okay. I took issue okay, with fine. the snap. He took issue with bend and he took issue with the snap. And <clears throat> I, I, I'm I'm still of the same position. It's bend and snap. Its dominance has been announced. We've lost the war if we wanted to wrest it away from culture. Pop culture has demanded its sacrifice and bend and snap is here. <laughs> I don't. I, I. I do not debate this. As I said to, I'm not going to read what Rachel and Lauren said because we had very long conversations about this. Too long, some would but say. Thorough. I was witness on text threads of thorough debates of Kelly's just aesthetic problem with the bend and snap, and I, yes. I, I get it. It's, it's all. It's all to do with the T Rex arms. I think the the popping and the locking is all good in motion. I just think there's a better way to do it. And you just that doesn't you just mean it's not iconic. I'm not like taking it. the. I'm not taking it away from someone. But Robin wanted to throw in her two cents. She thought the bend and flip might be nice, where you flip your hair up and push push your chest out, or as Lauren said, the bend and roll. She didn't really explain what that would be, but I can imagine that it's pretty sexy. But your contention Ryan is brought that, up the bend and snarl. I, I like okay, that, I like that too. I don't, that's the thing is that you you were saying this bend and snap is not effective. It's not getting my attention as a uh, an admirer of the person doing it. You, you're saying you're not really getting wooed by the move. That's what you're saying. Well, it's not it, really working I, for you. That's one half of it. But I also do, I think it's in impractical. In in its in its execution, because your your whole thing is to pull up the pull up the the object that you just picked up, and right. what you're doing is you're tucking it into your armpits, and right. I, I, I don't really think that draws the eye where you want it to. So I, I think it it's not only doing it for me sex, sexually, but I I also think it's impractical, and I think yeah. you could do it better. I think and, Elle Woods will do better in her life. And so my thing is. If Reese Witherspoon does a bend and snarl, I'm still won over by her. It, it's mission accomplished. I will have noticed her sexually. Oh, you know what? Actually, Ryan, you're right. You bring up an interesting point. I'm saying Reese Witherspoon might be able to pull this off, but she's trying to teach the world a move that isn't for the world. It's just for herself. <laughs> the world's not ready for the bend and snap. Yeah. <laughs> but I really do. I just want to say I appreciate Rachel and Lauren's input because they had a lot of great things to say they, in they had of the bend and much snap. much much to say and basically to sum up rachel defended the bend and snap and lauren sympathized with kelly's problems with the bend and snap and offered some alternatives yeah and 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 said but i can't deny it's iconic and that's true nobody can i'm not denying mm-hmm. it it is iconic but i was just a little uh, amazed and pretty annoyed that my phone was blowing up and i'm like is kelly still going on about this move on please i wasn't the only one why why <laughs> me 
It was Rachel too. <laughs> no, that she gave you plenty of opportunities to go, huh? Anyways, but no, you kept going. You kept going. <laughs> no, I, 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 I did. I will post it on the Patreon if anybody wants to see this debate. Maybe we'll post it on the Patreon. But I was a impressed bunch of at caps. I was impressed at your tenacity of like, no, he's going all in. He he's putting all his chips on the I table. S- I so rarely do in text message. I don't know why it was this one. Um, you you but to Ryan, the point to the point where you recorded a video of getting all of your thoughts out because you didn't no, even want well, to type up only, your thoughts. That was only because Rachel made a video of her cat telling me why my points didn't make sense and <laughs> I had to come on and be like, hey, I'm in the middle of a work day and I've been up since three in the morning. So. <laughs> but let me tell you why I don't like to bend and snap. So, yeah, if you guys have any um, defenses or attacks, Kelly will be all ears for them because this is a, f- a subject that fascinates and titillates. All ears, but maybe not all voice, because man, I'm I'm losing it here. Um, but Ryan, since since we talked about the bend and snap, which is so iconic, I bet you might have something about this movie that you think is iconic enough to give it a rom com Oscar. He's the quietest announcer ever. I again, I have to be quiet for this one because my baby's sleeping next door. Little baby. Yes, the Oscar I'm going... I have a baby. I have a baby. The Oscar I'm giving it is Best Dialogue. Oh my god. The dialogue throughout this thing is iconic. This is one of the most quoted movies in, like... It's it's way bigger in Britain, obviously. It's much more of a cult classic there, but it's it's got its appreciators here. But the movie is eminently quotable and... um, yeah, what can I say? I love it. Uh, Richard E. Grant says that he still has people come up to him all the time and just quote it at him. Like, yeah, they'll, they'll just... He, when he was in quarantine, he was doing... He was quoting it when he was under COVID quarantine. He would do Instagram stories of him just doing his monologues. Oh, I love that so much. I kind of want to give this movie most original. Mm-hmm. I'd be down Because for that. I... I Taken, taken from uh, you know, um, a mount or a fount. If you're at the top of one of those, and you're looking down at this movie, it's a road trip movie about two friends going to the country and coming back to the city. You know, mm-hmm. that's <clears throat> something that doesn't seem super original. Like we have a million road trip movies, but mm-hmm. the road trip isn't really the thing about this. Like the road trip goes by very quickly. It's just one. You're, you're watching one person heal and one person not be able to. Mm-hmm. And it's a comedy, it's a trauma, it's a tragedy, and it's a, a victory. And it's all wrapped up in this friendship between these two very unique individuals. And I, I, I think it's, it's original for so many different reasons. And I'm going to come back to it every year probably until I die, um, mm-hmm. just because I feel like it's worthwhile. Absolutely. Well said. I couldn't say it better myself. I echo your thoughts to the letter, which brings me to my most important question of the night. Kelly, who would you fall in love with? Are there any circumstances in which uh, the two of you might be more than just good friends? The truth of it is I loved you from the first second I met you. (laughs) But mostly I hate the way I don't hate you. Not even close. Not even a little bit. Not even at all. You have bewitched me, body and soul, and I love, and love, and love you. I know. 
I feel for the farmer. <laughs> his his with there's this great scene where we didn't talk about where with nail. Uh, accidentally lets the cat the, the farmer's cow out and the farmer can't get it because he's got a, a bum foot and um, it's where Marwood really shines because he like mm-hmm. yells at the cow and chases him back it's an amazing mm-hmm. scene um, but I think I think I'm gonna go with Marwood um, mm. he's a journaler he's quiet he wears a good sweater and I think he cleans up real nice yeah 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 uh, definitely I, definitely I almost good, said Monty though because Monty's a sugar daddy, and mm. <laughs> um, I'm gonna go with Withnail because I think I would have been absolutely taken in by his charms and his eccentricity and his lust for life, and I think I would have gotten sucked into his hurricane and probably would have enjoyed <laughs> my time. But also, like Marwood realized, I had to get out at some point. But it would have been worth it. It would have been worth it. Yeah. Totally. I love that. I love that so much. Well, Ryan, what are we watching next week? Next week, it's a brand new rom-com. We're doing the J-Lo Owen Wilson rom-com from Universal Studios. We're doing Marry Me out in theaters, baby. No one's seen it yet. This is the first time that we've done this. Isn't that great, guys? A movie theater rom-com. I haven't seen a rom-com in theaters since the big sick six years ago. Holy shit. And and the reason why you haven't probably seen it in so long is because we had a big sick happen. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I'm um, super excited. Hopefully blah, it's blah. good. <laughs> if not, it'll just be great to have some popcorn with you. <laughs> I was like, do you want to go see Marry Me with me, Sarah? And she's like, oh, no, it looks so bad. No. And I'm like, oh, Okay, <laughs> like totally like my wife, the marriage therapist just blew me out of the water. Just like, okay, I'll go with Kelly. It's okay. That was, that was kind of like Robin last night where I was like, Hey, so I need to watch with Noel and I before tomorrow. And Robin's seen it with me a couple of times. And I was like, do you want to watch it? And she's like, you can watch it. <laughs> <laughs> Because oh, okay. Robin doesn't dislike the movie, but like she has to really, I think, like Sarah, dedicate herself to only what she loves right now. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Doesn't have the headspace for anything um, else. I, I'm so excited to go see a movie, though. Um, yeah. And I don't even care if it's good, but I'm excited to see Owen Wilson. I just, I have to say, wow, we're going to wow. go see a movie. Wow. Wow. Well, Kelly, I love you so much that I would get completely wasted and have the worst hangover in my life because it would mean having a drunken night of excess with you, my best friend. And I love you so much that after I left you next to the wolves, I I would I'd probably come back and say, no, you can come to Manchester with me. It's cool. Wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. <clears throat> And this is where we will say goodbye. Ryan and Kelly must bid you adieu. Thank you for listening to our review. Rate and subscribe, we'll even take a bribe. So see you next week on the Gentleman's Guide. To rom-coms. <laughs> <laughs>